today, if you uh, uh, want to be riled up a little bit, this should be the right place for you. We're going to be talking about eschatology, and we're going to be talking about probably the most misinterpreted book in the New Testament, which is the book of Revelation, all right, the book of Revelation. So this should be a lot of fun. And then in our sermon, we're actually in Mark 13 going to be talking about a passage that deals with the end times and such as well. So it'll just be end times all day today, should be a lot of fun. Let's talk a little bit about what is eschatology, and then we'll talk about specifically how to interpret the book of Revelation. There's a lot of passages in the New Testament about the end times and eschatology, places like uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 or Acts 2 or Matthew 24, these kind of things. There's a lot, but the big one is the book of Revelation, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today. But to start, let's talk a little bit about eschatology. You'll hear us use the term a lot here, eschatology or eschatological or eschaton. They're all related. Uh, what, the, what eschatology is, it's the study of the last things, or what's more commonly called the end times, all right? The Greek word eschaton means last. That's why eschatology is the study of what's last, the study of the end or the study of the last things. Let me give you a definition that you've got here on your sheet. Eschatology is the study of the last things or, quote, end times and considers, uh, I'm sorry, and concerns what will happen both personally and universally in the future, Okay. Eschatology is the study of the last things or quote-unquote end times and concerns what will happen both personally and universally in the future. What does this area of study include in the Bible? It includes the following questions. And by the way, these are teasers. We don't have time to go into everything about eschatology today, uh, everything regarding a millennium or whether or not there's a pre-tribulational rapture and a tribulation and all these sticky, spicy terms that Christians fight over. We don't have time to cover all of those today. But I want to give you some of the questions that we ask as Christians as we come to the Bible when it comes to things related to the end time. Okay, so the first is when will Christ return? Right? When will Christ return? Not the specific day or hour, which the Bible is very clear that we cannot know. But what will it look like as far as other world events? Will there be some millennial kingdom after or before? Will uh, will there be some sort of tribulation? What will happen? What will Christ return look like in relation to other events the Bible talks about? Okay, Uh, what will Jesus' second coming be like? Will you miss it? All right? Something like this. What will it look like? Let me ask this question just to stir everybody up. Can Jesus come at any point? There's all these passages that say that he can come at any time. He comes like a thief in the knife. A knife. A thief thief in the night. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit sick. So if I uh, misspeak, I apologize. But there are all these other passages that say certain things have to happen first, right? Doesn't there have to appear a man of lawlessness and the gospel be proclaimed to all nations and there be signs in the sky? So how do we reconcile those two? See, this is the kind of thing we deal with in eschatology. How do you interpret the book of Revelation correctly, all right? So if I just ask this question, let's just get a show of hands. Who thinks the book of Revelation is literal? Uh, Who thinks it's figurative? Uh, Who's not sure? Who thinks it's kind of both and it's really weird? Okay, that's everybody, all right? So it's difficult, all right? How do we approach this type of genre? How do we approach prophecy? How do we approach what's called apocalyptic? So there's different genres out there. So, uh, you know, poetry is a type of genre or narrative is a type of genre or the Proverbs are a type of genre. Hopefully you don't read all those books the same way, right? So the example I give is if I write my wife a love letter and I say, I love you so much that my heart hurts and I think I might die. That's very different than if I write a letter to my doctor and I say, my heart hurts and I think I might die. The genre is different, so it changes the meaning of the text, all right? 
the next one that deals that we deal with in eschatology is, is the millennial kingdom of Christ spoken about in Revelation 20 literal or figurative? Has it already happened? Is it happening now or will it happen in the future? Okay? Christians fight over one passage in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 20, where it talks about Christ reigning for a thousand years and what that means. And Christians divide themselves over this and split churches and stuff over this, which I don't think they need to do on this issue. But that's a topic we deal with in eschatology. Is there such a thing as a pre-tribulational rapture? Is that different than the second coming of Christ? Okay. So again, I'm, I'm assuming that you have certain presuppositions coming into this class from maybe what you've heard or what you've read. Uh, I won't answer that question. I'll just tell you something I saw on TV, which was really funny. To play a prank on this girl in a coffee shop, they got everyone involved in there because this girl was a big proponent of a pre-tribulational rapture. And when she went to the restroom, they left piles of clothes on the floor and everybody left the coffee shop. <laughs> and they had it on video. So she comes back and she's like, I missed it, you know? And uh, hopefully was brought to repentance or something. Uh, who is or what is an antichrist, all right? That's, kind of, that's a topic that we deal with when we talk about the end times in eschatology, some type of antichristic figure. Paul calls him a man of lawlessness. So that's another kind of thing we deal with. Now, you're noticing I'm not answering a lot of these because we don't have time, all right? We only have an hour to basically try to interpret the book of Revelation, which is really tricky. So I'm just giving you a, a teaser. Maybe eventually we'll do a whole series on eschatology, which would be a lot of fun. What does the number 666 mean? Is it some sort of uh, barcode, you know, you get put on your arm, or uh, you'll see it online. Rock stars will paint it on their guitar. I'm not sure they really know what it means. Uh, but what does the number 666 mean? What does it not mean? Who is the beast? What is the mark of the beast? That's something we deal with in eschatology. When will the general resurrection of everyone take place? What will that be like? That's a, that's a topic we deal with in eschatology. <clears throat> what will our resurrected bodies be like? So there's something miraculous. So the Bible's clear that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning that he was raised from the dead. Eventually, all people will be raised from the dead and judged. Uh, and uh, the question is, what are those resurrected bodies like? They're somehow glorified, but there's not a lot that we know about that. How old will you be? What will it be like? We're not quite sure, all right? What will final judgment be like? Okay, well, there'll be different judgments. Is the... Uh, Great white throne judgment different than other judgments in the Bible, these kind of things. That has to deal with eschatology. What will the lake of fire be like for non-Christians? What's interesting is we have a tendency to think of, of hell or lake of fire or something like this as a place where the devil torments you, right? He's got his big uh, pitchfork and his little curly tail with the point or whatever, and he's torturing people or something like this. But in the Bible, he's in there suffering with unbelievers as well. It's God's hell, not the devil's hell. And he's in there suffering as well. But what will that be like for non-Christians? What will the new heavens and new earth be like for Christians? This is a topic that we deal with when we talk about eschatology, okay? Does God have a plan? And if so, what is God's future plan for the nation of Israel? Or sometimes you'll hear in the South, Israel, all right? Israel, God's people, Israel. Uh, you know, what, uh, what does that look like? Is there some sort of future plan for God's ethnic national people, or is there not? By the way, I'm going to tease a bunch of things in here, including my own positions, so we can all just all have fun together, all right? That's my hope, is that we can, uh, we can laugh on a topic that's difficult instead of getting mad at each other, uh, and then many more, all right? These are the kind of topics we deal with when we talk about eschatology. Now, there is, each of these topics have been dissertations and multi-volume works, and so we don't have enough time to deal with these today. Suffice it to say, these are the kind of things we need to be thinking about when we think about eschatology, when it comes to the doctrine of the end times or the last things. Everybody with me so far? 
Okay, let me give you a few precursors to keep in mind as we study this topic, then we'll spend most of our time specifically in the book of Revelation, all right? Number one, don't believe something just because you've always believed it. Believe something because it's biblical, because it's what the Bible teaches. Listen, we all have pre-assumptions. We all have what are called presuppositions, things that we assume coming into this room, okay? We have to lay those down so that we can try to look at the text as objectively as possible. Now, it's impossible to completely lay those down. You can't get rid of your presuppositions, but what you can do is you can be aware of those presuppositions. You can know what you're already assuming is in the text. Let me give you a great example I often use. Um, Did you know the term antichrist does not occur anywhere in the book of Revelation? Does that surprise you? It surprises most people. Why? Because you just assume it's got to be there. So we have to lay down our pre-assumptions and our presuppositions when it comes to eschatology and the end times so that we can read the text rightly. Our goal is not to be of a certain theological camp. It's to be biblical. We're, We're Christians first, all right? Christians, then evangelicals, then Protestants, then Baptists or something like this, all right? We're Christians, though, first. Number two. Be open-minded in this area of theology and allow for differences of opinion. Okay. When it comes to certain doctrines like the Trinity or the deity of Christ or the resurrection or something like this, these you need to hang on to. You have to hold these to be a Christian. When it comes to certain things about the end times, though, there's freedom to disagree and still love Jesus. There are godly, spirit-filled people who disagree on the nature of the millennium or a tribulation or a rapture or lack thereof or whatever it might be, and there's disagreement, and that's okay. This is not something to get mad or fight about. It's something to to have iron sharpening iron as we discuss these things over coffee. And sometimes when iron rubs against iron, it creates sparks, and those sparks are not always bad, all right? That means that iron's getting sharpened. And so uh, keep that in mind with this. This is an area where you're free to disagree and still be a member here. This is not uh, something to fight about, but it is good, good, lively, passionate discussions can come from this, and we would encourage those, okay? <clears throat> Number three, try to understand the Bible, and especially the book of Revelation, in the time and culture in which it was written, in the time and culture in which it was written. That's really important, okay? D, and this is a really big one, keep your focus on Jesus. The book of Revelation is actually about Jesus, You'll have a tendency sometimes to turn on the TV and there's always some guy up there with his charts and his Israeli flag and there's a big flaming tank in the background and he's trying to talk about what he thinks is going to happen. And there are certain people out there that seem to love being an end times expert more than they love Jesus. They put all their focus and time and energy and effort into just trying to figure out the day and the hour despite the fact that Jesus says not to do that instead of focusing on Jesus. Revelation is about how Jesus comes back and fixes a broken world. How Christians are being persecuted by Rome And they're encouraged to stay faithful because what's going on down here is not the same thing that's going on in heaven. In heaven, everything's good and God is king and people are worshiping. And one day Christ will come back and he will unite heaven and earth and everything will be okay. That's the purpose of Revelation. It's all about Jesus. So we want to make sure that we keep it all about Jesus. And then lastly, keep in mind, and I'm going to mention this again in the sermon today, but there's a sense in which the end times has already begun. I say this a lot. Zach, are we in the end end times? Yes, but we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. Okay? The end times is what happens when demons are cast out and uh, people are healed and the gospel's preached to the poor and Jesus dies on a cross and he's resurrected and the Spirit's given and the gospel goes out to all nations. Those are all end times events. Those happened 2,000 years ago. Okay? 
So there is a sense in which we are already in the end times, but we have been in the end times for 2,000 years. The end times is a theological category for what happens when people start getting up from the grave like Jesus. Okay, so keep that in mind. We're always one day closer, but we're in the same era. We're in the same epoch of history as the time of the apostles, all right, if you will, as far as the resurrection of Christ starting the end times. Okay, everybody good so far? That's eschatology. There's a bunch of questions to fight and wrestle about with no helpful answers. So just take that with you. Do with them what you will. Now let's talk about Revelation because this is a class, after all, on New Testament theology. So let's talk a little bit about Revelation. Okay, book of Revelation uh, is written by John. Uh, There's two different dates that people use for Revelation. Some people put it just before 70 AD during the reign of Nero, around uh, 65 to 68. Uh, Other people put it in the mid-90s, all right, so... uh, Uh, put it in the mid-90s, around 96, 95 in that era, Uh, written by John. The title of the book is The Apocalypse of John, in Greek, Apocalypsis Iowano, The Apocalypse of John, okay? We often translate it as Revelation, but here's a pet peeve of mine. There's no S. It's not Revelations, all right? It's just Revelation. In the same way that you also, there's the Psalms, but you have individual Psalm, like Psalm 23, you have Revelation, no S. Tim, just to mess with me, will always say it with an S. He's like, so you're teaching on Revelations today? How many are there? Multiple Revelations. He'll say something like that just to mess with me. There's no S. It's the Apocalypse of John, all right, and it's Revelation. And uh, there are about five different ways to read Revelation. Now, maybe that's new to you. I think a lot of us come into the room assuming that I thought there was only one way of reading Revelation, the way that I had heard growing up or I had heard preachers talk about or I had done this study. There's five different ways of reading Revelation, and so let's talk about these different ways of reading it, okay? Number one, let's talk about historicism, all right, historicism. The historicism view of Revelation tries to apply the book of Revelation to what's been going on in church history, okay, what's been going on in church history. There's been 2,000 years since the resurrection of Christ, and it takes the different events of Revelation, and it tries to uh, put them into church history in different places. A famous example of this is Martin Luther during the time of the Reformation. He read Revelation and he said, oh yeah, the Antichrist, the, the, the beast, that's got to be the Pope, which will get you a lot of trouble when the only church around is the Roman Catholic Church, all right? So he said, oh yeah, that's pretty clear, the beast, he's putting himself in the place of Christ, people are bringing him homage and all these things, yeah, he's clearly the, uh, the uh, Antichrist. That's historicism. He's applying the book of Revelation to different parts in church history to try to figure out where it fits within God's people. The problem with this view is it tends to become arbitrary. You start picking whoever you think this beast is depending on when you live, right? So if you're Luther, you think it's the Pope, but if you live in 1945, you think it's Hitler, right? So you start just picking and choosing in church history where you think uh, the different parts of the book are supposed to fit, okay? So for example, I'll keep using the beast as an example because I think it's something we're kind of familiar with from that text, but the beast in Revelation might refer to somebody during the medieval period, somebody during the early church, uh, somebody during a later uh, church, whatever it might be, but that's historicism. So historicism is applying the book of Revelation to different periods in church history. Everybody with me on that? Okay. Again, there's strengths and weaknesses to all these views. The second view is called idealism. Idealism. What what an idealist reading of Revelation does is it says, stop trying to nail down specifically what you think Revelation is that's meant to give us symbols of what it's always like to be God's people and be oppressed, all right? It's meant to give us ideals. So you don't have to say the beast is specifically this person. You can just say a beast is anyone who persecutes God's people, 
any political power who, pers- who persecutes God's people, something like that. That's an idealist reading of Revelation. So again, historicism, we apply Revelation to church history, right? Everything going on after the apostles. Idealism, stop trying to nail down specifics and just know that this is meant to tell us generally how things are going. Generally, Christians are persecuted. Generally, uh, political nations are the ones persecuting them. Generally, they need to stay faithful because Christ is coming back. That's what an idealist reading of Revelation does, okay? So, for example, the beast in Revelation might refer to the fact that there are always rulers who persecute Christ's church, okay? Everybody good on these two so far? Okay, bored to tears? Everybody having fun? Okay, here we go. Third one, preterism. Preterism. The preterist reading of Revelation interprets the events of the book as having already happened in the first century, okay? Having already happened in the first century. Now, this might be new to a lot of us. We have a tendency when we open the Bible to get to Revelation, we instantly start thinking in the way distant future, despite the fact that Revelation 1.1 says, I'm writing this to tell you what's soon to take place, all right? And so what the preterist will say is the preterist will say, these events are things going on in the first century, The beast is Rome. That's very clear. He's persecuting God's people. They're encouraged to stay faithful. Now, there are two branches of preterism. One is partial preterism, where you say some of these things have happened in the past, but not all of them. That is a legitimate evangelical option. There's another type of preterism, though, that's called full preterism. Full preterism means everything in the book of Revelation has already happened, including the second coming of Christ, which is crazy. You have a tendency to have full preterism a lot of times with liberal, theologically liberal churches. Christ has come back in the sense that his church is good and involved in social work. That's not what we mean when we say Christ comes back, all right? So full preterism, not a legitimate evangelical option. Partial preterism, though, that at least some of the things in the book of Revelation have already happened is a legitimate evangelical option. Have you with me so far? Let's do a little test. What is historicism? In your own words, one sentence. Be proud. Uh, say it with gust. Gusto, who has one? Who wants to, to answer that? Yes, Book of Revelation is a history of the church. Very good. What is idealism? Yes, generalizing it, right? Saying it's generally about these things, but you don't have to nail it down to specifics in world history, okay? Preterism. Come on! If you're going to, yes, that it's already happened or at least parts of it have already happened, all right? If you're going to be wrong, be wrong proudly. I'm kidding. That's terrible biblical advice, all right? Okay, so preterism. That, okay, now this is the one that probably most of us are familiar with, futurism, all right? Futurism sees all of, if not most of, the events in the book of Revelation as happening in the distant future, all right? So the distant future from the apostles. So maybe sometime still in the future for us thousands of years after this has gone on. This is a very popular interpretation, uh, specifically in evangelicalism in the U.S. and in English-speaking countries. It's not as popular everywhere else, but it is in English-speaking countries, okay? Now, the last view, what I call my view, I mean the right view, I mean eclecticism, says that all of these have elements that where they're right and where they're wrong. There is a sense in which we do see patterns of what we've seen in the book of Revelation happening in the church. For example, where political powers persecute God's people. Notice, by the way, John says there are many antichrists. Not just one, many antichrists have come. The problem is it becomes arbitrary. Who do we fit with each passage, depending on what age we live in? There's a sense in which there's idealism taught, that God is giving us patterns for what it looks like to be persecuted as God's people and how we need to remain faithful in Christ. The problem here, though, is that the events in Revelation seem to be referring to actual historical events as well. They're very specific, 
okay? Preterism is great. Some of these things have happened in the in, or, uh, already. The problem with this is there are still things that are to happen in the future, and you've got to now figure out which, which of those things are to happen in the future and which have already happened in the past. And again, you have to start picking and choosing. And then the problem with futurism is that the book of Revelation is written to churches in the past to warn them about something in their day. You can't just say, this book had no relevance to them, but now we can apply it for today. It has to make sense to the original audience first. So the last view... What's called eclecticism is the one that uh, I would encourage you to think about. Eclecticism basically says there's a reason why different people hold this. People are not dumb who hold these different positions. They're very smart. They're picking up on one thing that's true, but they're not picking up on everything that's true. There are strengths and weaknesses of these. So the eclecticist says there's not just one mold we can fit revelation into. We're trying to, in all these patterns, make it just one thing, and it's not just one thing. It's several things. It's a letter. It's prophecy. It's a genre known as apocalyptic, which has to do with the end of the world and how we're expecting God to come and vindicate his people. So I encourage you to support this. By the way, you can hold any of these here at uh, Parkway other than full preterism. I mean, you shouldn't hold that Jesus has bodily, physically come back. Uh, But other than that, you can hold partial preterism, idealism, historicism, or futurism. All that's okay. All that's within the bounds of orthodoxy. I would encourage you to, uh, to look at this position and say there's probably good things and bad things with each of these. Okay, good things and bad things with each of these. So I'm uh, Pastor Vanilla up here, so I'm not picking one specific one. I'm, I'm picking the boring one that's safe. Okay, the boring one that's safe. Okay. Now, <clears throat> um, let's, ha- let's go through some tips on reading the book of Revelation, and then we're going to spend some time specifically on the symbols. Before I do that, though, is all this making sense, what I'm saying? Not, not that you agree or disagree, but does it make sense that there are several different ways of reading Revelation? that all have their strengths and their weaknesses, and that we have to be aware of our presuppositions, because coming in here, most of you probably just landed on one of these, all right, whatever it might be. Everybody, is that fair? Let me give you a resource, by the way, if you want to do more study in the book of Revelation. It's the best book on it I've ever read, and it is small. It's only 110 pages, but it will, uh, it will kick your behind. It's pretty tough, uh, but it's really, really helpful. Uh, it's called The Theology of the Book of Revelation by Richard Bauckham. The Theology of the Book of Revelation by Richard Bauckham. Look, Jeff, I spelled his name right. Okay, Richard Bauckham, Theology of the Book of Revelation. Uh, Richard Bauckham, Dr. Bauckham, was a New Testament professor at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he's written a lot on understanding eschatology within its first century context. And so he's got a little book on this that's very, very helpful. Uh, He's got a bigger one called The Climax of Prophecy, but this is a condensed one, The Theology of the Book of Revelation, uh, produced by Cambridge Press. So if you just want a helpful resource, that's what I'd recommend. Okay, tips on reading the book of Revelation. Here's where I'm going to say things tongue-in-cheek and just joke a little bit with you, if I may. Number one, tips on reading the book of Revelation. Read it in its correct genre, all right? Read it in its correct genre. Revelation is not only a prophecy, but also a letter and apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic literature looks forward to the day when God will judge the wicked and vindicate his people. Can you think of another book in the Bible that deals with apocalyptic, apocalypticism? Dealing with how God will judge and vindicate his people in the end. Think in the Old Testament. Daniel's a great one, all right? There are elements elsewhere. Daniel is a great one, all right? Uh, Apocalyptic literature, okay? Number two, this is a big one. Make sure your interpretation would work for Jewish Christians living under Roman domination 2,000 years ago. All right, let me say that another way. Make sure whatever interpretation you have of Revelation that it makes sense to the original audience. Any interpretation that you have that would not have made sense to Jews 
living under Roman domination 2,000 years ago is almost certainly a wrong interpretation. It has to make sense to them first. John is not writing this letter to encourage only believers 2,000 years in the future. It has to make sense to the original audience first. It does apply to us. I think it does apply to us, but it has to apply to them first, okay? These letters and things like this in the Bible are written to churches or individuals and to us by implication because we're also part of Christ's church, but we've got to understand the original audience and the original intent first. Uh, this is how I often joke about, you know, the locusts in Revelation are not Apache helicopters. How do I know that? Because that's not what John's audience is worried about. He's not saying, dearest Christians in Thessalonica or whatever, uh, watch out because eventually there'll be a war in Iraq and these kind of things. That's not what he's doing, all right? That's not what he's doing. Who is the red dragon? Is it China? No, the text says it's the devil, all right? So we got to be careful about that. We got to make sure it makes sense to the original audience. The next few points are kind of what I've already mentioned here, so I'll just run through them. Not everything in Revelation is in the future. It's written to churches in the past. Not everything in Revelation has happened in the past. We're still waiting on the second coming of Christ as well as the end of all things. Not everything is merely symbolic, like idealism. There are actual historical people and events being mentioned in the book of Revelation, okay? So be careful. That's just three different rules of saying the same thing. Be careful of locking yourself down into just one of these when it comes to Revelation. Number six, this one's big. Allow revelation to interpret itself. Allow revelation to interpret itself. For example, instead of guessing what the lampstands are, allow revelation to tell you. In Revelation 1.20, it tells you what the lampstands are. So you, you want to avoid doing this. Every Bible study I've ever been in, here's what happens. Someone will ask a question and say, what does that mean? And the people will remove their eyes from the source of the answer in God's word and start thinking about and wondering about what it means. Don't do that. Stay there in the text because a lot of times the text will tell you this is who this stands for. This is what this is. It does that, by the way, with the beast. It does that, by the way, specifically with the lamb. It does that with several things. We're trying to figure out what's going on here. It'll tell you in the text who it is. So you don't have to speculate. Number seven, do not read it like it is a code. Do not read it like it is a code. All right? Do not try to find a one-to-one correspondence with everything in the book of Revelation. That's not how it's meant to be read. A lot of imagery is meant to be used, sometimes just to symbolize one thing, even though it'll just give you ten descriptors of it. So be careful. Try, don't try to read it like it's a code. That's not how this genre of literature is meant to be read with other Jewish works in this same genre. That's not how they're meant to be read. Okay? Now, <clears throat> yeah, um, Let me say this real quick. Just because something uses symbolic imagery does not mean that the point is less literal. Let me say that again. Just because figurative or symbolic language is used, that doesn't mean the point is less literal. So let me give you an example. Sometimes when the Bible speaks, it will use a literal description to make a literal point. All right? Jesus went into Jerusalem. What does that mean? Jesus went into Jerusalem. You don't have to start speculating what really is Jerusalem. You don't have to do that. It just means he went into Jerusalem. That's literal language to make a literal point. Revelation will use a lot of symbolic language, but it still makes a literal point. So in, the, in Revelation where it talks about a sharp two-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, does that mean he literally vomits a sword? No. But does that mean he still judges his enemies by his word? Yes. I had a buddy one time that said, uh, well, I think all this imagery about hell is just symbolic. And I said, okay. Symbolic for what? Good things or bad things? And that was the point he was missing. He thought because it was symbolic, there wasn't a literal point to it. And there is a literal point to it, okay? There is a literal point to it. So just because something's symbolic, that doesn't mean we just throw it out the window and there's not a literal point the text is making. We have a tendency to think literal equals good and symbolic equals bad, and that's not true. Literal language sometimes makes a literal point. 
Figurative language sometimes makes a literal point, sometimes it makes a symbolic point. It depends on the passage, okay? This next one, I think, by the way, is the key to understanding the book of Revelation. This next one I'm going to give you. Ready? Interpret the symbols in Revelation in light of the Old Testament, not your newspaper, all right? Interpret the symbols in Revelation in light of the Old Testament, especially Ezekiel and Daniel, okay? So, for example, when you read about a beast, let me tell you a great place to turn to look at beasts, all right? Look open in Daniel 7, where political powers are described as beasts. When you see four horsemen of the apocalypse, don't just guess who that might be. Open to Zechariah 6, where four horsemen are mentioned. The reason Revelation bedevils us a lot of times is because we don't know our Old Testament near as well as John's audience does. That is their Bible. The New Testament isn't done being written at this point because John's still writing Revelation. And so that's what they think of. Every time you need to read Revelation, you need to think, where have I heard this in the Old Testament? Where is there a tree of life? Oh, that's mentioned in Revelation and Genesis. Where is there gold in the land? Oh, that's in Revelation and in Genesis. Where is there beast? Oh, that's in Daniel and in Revelation. Where are there these plagues, right? When these angels pour out these bowls and boils and these kind of plagues fall on people, where do we get that? We get that from Exodus, right, as God's judging the Egyptians. You want to read uh, Revelation keeping in mind the Old Testament. There are not very many quotes from the Old Testament into Revelation, but there are more allusions to the Old Testament in Revelation than any other New Testament book, okay? It is saturated. If you cut John, Old Testament prophets fall out, okay? That's just what's going on. Number nine, Revelation uses figurative language to describe literal events. We talked about that. Number 10, use good resources. Use good resources, okay? I, uh, Again, I said this is a safe place to hold many different views when it comes to the end times, so uh, this is meant to be said in love. But we have to be careful because many of us, and this is how I grew up, all right, so I'm putting myself in that category. Many of us grew up thinking about Revelation through an end times view that nobody in all of church history held until the 19th century. No, so be careful that you don't think that a traditional interpretation is what you think it means by traditional. Let's see what the church historically has thought this means as traditional. So be careful with that, okay? 11, try not to come to the book with preconceived notions. Try not to come to the book with preconceived notions. I gave you a, uh, an example a second ago with the word antichrist doesn't occur in the book of Revelation. That's shocking to us because we just assume it's got to be in there. We have to lay down our presuppositions. We have to lay down our assumptions when we come to this text. You can't do it perfectly. Nobody can. But you can be aware of what those are. Okay? You can be aware of what those are. Lastly, most importantly, the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. The point of Revelation, here's what I, how I think we should interpret the book of Revelation. The point of Revelation is to encourage believers under the dominion of Rome to persevere and stay faithful to King Jesus because although they are suffering now and future Christians will suffer as well, Jesus will one day come back to judge his enemies and rescue his followers. I'm going to say that again. The book of Revelation is all about Jesus. The point of Revelation is to encourage believers under the dominion of Rome to persevere and stay faithful to King Jesus. Because although they are suffering now and future Christians will suffer as well, Jesus will one day come back to judge his enemies and rescue his followers. Okay? Far from being an irrelevant book, I think Revelation is sometimes the most relevant book. It encourages us when we're persecuted, when things are going poorly, when governments are making bad decisions to know that ultimately Jesus is in charge and he's going to come back and eventually everything will be good. The wolf will lie down with the lamb and there will be, as it was in Eden, only better. All right? There will be, as in Eden, only better. 
we need to encourage each other with these things. Uh, we have a tendency to assume that Revelation is this tricky code that God doesn't want people to know. It's His Word. He wants His people to know it. You don't have to count letters or do something. You just have to understand what's He saying in light of the Old Testament. That's the key, I think, hermeneutical key, the interpretational key of understanding the book of Revelation. You have a lot of confusion uh, with Revelation in church history. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called it a, quote, moot prophecy. John Calvin wrote commentaries on just about every book of the Bible except Revelation. He simply wrote, I don't understand it. All right, so you got these multi-volume works where he's writing on all these other books. And when it comes to, I think it was like 2 Peter, 2 3 John, I think it was 2 3 John, Jude, and Revelation, he just wrote, I don't understand it. So uh, you're in good company with some of the smartest guys in our faith wrestling with these things. Um, but uh, that's not how it's meant to be. God wants us to understand his words, so we might be encouraged and edified in it. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the symbols in the book of Revelation. What do these things stand for? Seven stars, the lamb, the beast, all of that. Before we do, I want to mention the culture in the first century so the book of Revelation will make a lot of sense. Sorry, I'm drinking up here. I've got a little sinus thing. Okay. If you were a Jew in the first century, here's what the Roman Empire would have looked like. Okay, Rome who, by the way, claimed to be the light of the world. You ever seen the, the movie Gladiator? There is a scene where he's talking to Marcus Aurelius, and he says, what is Rome? And he says, I've been to most of the other parts of the world. They're dark and damp. Rome is the light. All right? That's what they uh, held to. Rome was seen as the one to bring peace and joy and protection from enemies and, quote, salvation. We looked at a Roman coin when I talked about give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The Roman emperors sometimes would call themselves divine or a son of the gods. So you have the political and the religious very much mixed in Rome, okay? Very much mixed in Rome. Rome, by the way, you'll sometimes see it like this. S-P-Q-R. That stands for Senatus Populus K Romanos, the Senate and the people of Rome, all right? You often see that if you go to Rome today or you see ancient architecture. It'll have the Senatus Populus K Romanos, the Senate and the people of Rome, that's how they would have it in Rome. Again, in the movie Gladiator, he's cutting that off his arm. That tattoo is what's on his arm. And so Rome was seen as divine. It was seen as the one to bring joy to the world. It was seen as the one who all the other nations are pagan and barbarous. What they need to simply do is become citizens of Rome, and then everything will be okay. okay? And Rome would send out guys that they called, wait for it, you're going to love this, evangelists. Why? Because evangelists bring the good news. And an evangelist would go into a city and say, I bring you good news. Because Augustus Caesar or because, you know, Domitian or because whoever is Caesar, your city is going to be safe. I proclaim to you salvation. If you will bow the knee, if you will drop an offering, a grain offering, and you will declare that Caesar is Lord, you can then become a citizen of Rome and you will have peace and you will have salvation. That's what's going on in the first century. So it now makes sense when there's a false prophet of the beast who goes and tells people to worship the beast. It makes sense all the claims that Jesus' lordship is in contrast to Caesar's. That's what's going on in the first century. So you have to make sure you understand this. If you're a Christian in the first century and someone comes to you and say, listen, you don't have to worship all our gods, but if you'll claim that Caesar is Lord and you'll offer a sacrifice, you can, you can be pardoned. We don't have to fight against you. You don't have to go to prison. You don't have to be killed. Simply do that. Submit yourself to Rome. Rome is a glorious kingdom. What Revelation does is it peels back the veneer. And we see really what Rome is, is a harlot riding on the beast that though she looks beautiful and she looks decadent, deep down she's drunk with the blood of the saints and with sexual immorality, all right? So Revelation is a very counter-political book. 
So keep that in mind with this imagery as we look at some of these different symbols in the book of Revelation. Number one, the symbols. And I didn't put all of them here. Why? Because there's a a thousand or something. There's a lot. But we're just going to go over some of the more prominent ones there. The first one is the number seven. The first one is the number seven. This is a Jewish symbolic number for completeness. It's used constantly throughout the book of Revelation. It's used elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, That there are six things that God hates, seven that he abhors. When you get to the number seven, the idea is completeness. God created the world in seven days. Uh, But in Revelation, you have seven churches, seven stars, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and many other. You have seven constantly repeated. The basic idea is the number of completeness, which makes sense in a book about the end times. It's all done. All the work is finished. The beast has seven heads, right? He's the totality of evil or something like this. You see this a lot. I'll give you an example. Uh, the seven golden lampstands, which I gave as an example when I said, let Revelation interpret itself. Revelation one twenty. as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Sometimes the Bible will just tell you. So though this is written to seven churches, there is probably something symbolic here about how we're supposed to understand this as God's church today, okay? That's the idea. It's written to seven because it's not just for these churches, although it's to them first. It's also to the church at large, Okay. You see this with seven stars. These stand for the seven angels slash messengers in the churches. By the way, the Greek word angelos, where we get the word angel, can also mean messenger. Okay? So sometimes it just means messenger. Other times it means what we think of when we think of an angel. Why? Because angels are messengers from God. They come and they bring messages. The next one, and you guys are going to crush this one. Ready? Who is the lamb? Yes! All right? That one's absolutely right. How do we know? Revelation 5, 11 through 14, then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. You have a very clear reference here. John has a very high Christology. You have Jesus explicitly being worshiped in the same way the Father is, right? You have a Trinitarian idea in Revelation. You have the Father sitting on the throne. You have Jesus, the Lamb, sitting at his right hand. You have the Spirit of God within the same vicinity, all right? You have a Trinitarian idea within Revelation. But here you see the Lamb seen explicitly as one to be worshipped, as one who's given the same glory as God. You see these elements. When, when Jeff taught on Trinitarianism, he said the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we see these, this concept of Trinity all over the place. This is a great, great way to see that. John is a monotheist. He's a Jew. And as he's worshipping the one God, he includes the Lamb in there, who's different than the Father, but also God. Right? So you see those kind of things in there. Jesus has already won the victory over the devil through his death and resurrection. That's one of the things they're praising. And as I mentioned, he is the central figure of Revelation. Okay? Everybody good so far? Everybody take a big breath. Whew, there's a lot of information. Shake it out, shake out your shoulders. Everything's going to be okay, all right? That's why the book of Revelation is written, to encourage you. Everything's going to be okay. Though you have cramps in your shoulders and you're bored now, one day Christ is coming back, all right? Okay, next, who are the living creatures? One of the things that shocks you when you first read Revelation is there are these weirdly described creatures that are worshiping God called living creatures. By the way, I always like to, around Christmas time, tease people who have a female angel up on their tree. Why? Because there's no female angels mentioned in Scripture, and two, sometimes when angels are described, they look really weird. 
How about you have one of these living creatures up on your tree with six wings and multiple faces? It'd be terrifying. Your kids would hate Christmas. That's what I want to see. I want to see a, a revelation-accurate angel up on your tree. So there are these living creatures which seem, are, seem to be some type of angelic beings. These are angels who worship God. They're different animal, and one of them has a human face, by the way. So they've got different animals, and one has a human face, are meant to show that they represent how all creation is to worship God. That's probably the symbolism behind that. So they're angels that worship God, and they're said to have different faces of different kinds of beasts throughout creation, including humans. The idea is that all creation should worship God. Okay? Next, another image in Revelation. There is a heavenly council of 24 elders. A heavenly council of 24 elders. Again, I need to make another joke to keep you awake. So, sometimes when uh, Jeff or Tim or Carl or Jerry or I uh, are going out to lunch or whatever, we'll try to open the door for one another to outdo one another in honor. And sometimes we'll joke and we'll say, it's another jewel in my crown. And then what someone will do is say, yeah, but I'm going to throw that crown before the lamb's feet. And then I say, are you one of the 24 mentioned? Out of all the people in the world, are you one of the 24 elders that gets to throw your crown down around the lamb's feet? Because this council of 24 elders represent a heavenly council, as this is in direct political imagery meant to contrast with the political rule of Rome. Kings, both in the ancient Near East and at the time of the New Testament, would have councils. They would make the decision, because they're the king, but they would talk to their council. This 24 elders, we see this with God, by the way, in the Old Testament. He'll talk to the angels and say, who will go down for us and do this? So you see this idea of uh, kind of a heavenly council with these 24 elders, a few other places we see this kind of imagery used in the uh, Bible. Psalm 82.1, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, lowercase g, meaning just angels. There are no other true gods, just angels. He holds judgment, okay? In Solomon's temple, priests were divided up into how many orders do you think? 24. 24, all right? In Solomon's temple, priests were divided uh, up into 24 orders. There's probably something here we're seeing as a kingdom of priests, God's people constantly through the book of Revelation. And some interpreters see this number as representing the heads of the tribes of Israel, which were 12, and the 12 apostles. So the idea of these 24 elders might be the idea of God's 12 tribes and his New Testament apostles all worshiping God. The 12 apostles, by the way, are the fulfillment of those 12 tribes. That's why Jesus chooses 12 and not 11 or 13. He's reconstituting Israel around himself, around himself. By the way, I know there's a lot of info and we're going really fast. We are recording this uh, that way if, uh, if you want to uh, hear my nonsense again. Uh, okay, next. Now, this is, I think, a really key element for understanding a big chunk of the book of Revelation. There are seven seals seven trumpets, and seven bowls, okay? And they're series. So you have seven seals, and when you break the last seal, then you have seven trumpets, and when you blow the last trumpet, you have seven bowls. You see this theme of 777 happening over and over again. What's going on in each of these is you're seeing a destruction of the world and then the story told again in a different way. A destruction of the world and then the story told a different way. And with each of those series of seven, you're getting more and more destruction, okay? So, for example, the seven seals come with judgments and harm one-fourth of the earth. The seven trumpets come with judgment and harm one-third of the earth. And with the seven bowls, the judgment's unlimited and the entire earth is burned up, all right? So, let's draw a little picture here. When the Bible says that there is a book that only the Lamb can open, don't think of a book like we have today. That's called a codex, all right? That doesn't come to like the fourth century, like where you have books where you turn pages. A book in the New Testament means a scroll, okay? A biblos. So you've got this scroll. 
right? And here's where the piece of paper just flaps over the top. And you have seals to, to, to close the scroll so that people wouldn't read your mail or whatever. You would have little seals. You'd take wax and you would seal it. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, all right? And so what happens is as he's breaking this, judgment is happening against God's enemies. And when he breaks the last seal, then you get trumpets. I'm not even going to try to draw a trumpet. Let's just make them sticks. Two, three, four, five, seven, all right? So then they blow the trumpet. And by the way, a fourth of the earth is destroyed when these are done. A third of the earth, which is more, though it sounds less, it's more, is destroyed here. And then when the last one's run, you get the bowls. I'm not going to draw those. That's a bowl times seven. Uh, you get these, and the whole world is destroyed. So what you're seeing is you're seeing a recapitulation. You're seeing uh, seven happen and destruction, seven happen and more destruction, seven happen and final destruction. You're seeing God's judgment dis- displayed in very symbolic language, much like it's used, by the way, with Exodus and the Egyptians in the Old Testament, talking about God judging his people, all right? Talking about God judging his people, Okay. In a way, they're telling the same story three times, so just keep that in mind with the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. The dragon, the dragon, who is the dragon? You might already know this one. Yes, he is Satan. How do we know? Revelation tells us. Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, all right? The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him, all right? So the, the dragon there is the devil. You'll see the beast fueled by the dragon. You'll see the false prophet fueled by the dragon. You'll see the harlot of Babylon slash Rome who rides the beast fueled by. It, the whole point is saying the devil is behind all this stuff that seems so glittery and pretty. He's actually the one fueling it, okay? He's actually the one fueling it. The beast... Who is the beast? I'm going to give you my view of who I think the beast is, but let me say this before I do. I think, again, that different, I think we've got to take into account all of these things. I'm going to say who I think the beast is to John's original audience, but that doesn't mean that there aren't future beastly-like figures that persecute God's church. Paul talks about a future man of lawlessness and these kind of things. So there, there might be very much a sense to where there might be some future beastly figure. Everybody with me? So I think it's a both and. We're going to talk about this in the sermon. I think when you read prophecy, it's like you're looking through a telescope. You've got to see the original meaning, but you also have got to see where it points out into the future. So I want to give you the original meaning of who I think the beast is, and then there might be still some sort of beastly persecution, if you will, against God's people in the future. I'm okay with that. So I just want to give you who I think the original audience would have understood the beast to be. I think the beast represents the political and military power of Rome slash the Roman emperor. Why do I think that? I'm going to tell you about 10 reasons in just a second when we get to the number 666. Suffice it to say, though, that for this, in Revelation, where we see beasts, they are political I'm sorry, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, where we see beasts, they are political powers who oppress God's people. So it would make sense in Revelation, written by Jews, or a Jew, to Jewish communities of Christians, that they would understand a beast to be a political power that persecutes God's people. They're trying to be very Jewish. They're trying to be very Old Testament, Okay. Let me give you some reasons for that. Revelation 13, 1 through 3. And I saw, well, let's just mix these together. I also think that 666 is about Nero. I think the number 666 is about Nero. Okay? Okay, we've got to explain something. <clears throat> if I want to write a number, like if I write a check, nobody writes checks anymore, but if I wrote a check, I would write out the words, right? If I was writing a check for $100, I would write $100. And then up in that little box, I would actually write the number 100, right? That number up there is called, well, those are called Arabic numerals. Everybody heard of this? 
So I can write out the word one, or I can just write one, two, three. Those are Arabic numerals. Everybody with me? The Jews don't have Arabic numerals. They have not been invented yet. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you don't even have symbols like this for numbers. So they don't have Arabic numerals. When they want to mark numbers, they use letters. Everybody with me on that? If I don't have a system of numbers, if I don't have, I have numbers, if I don't have a system of Arabic numerals, I'm going to start using letters as numbers. So maybe in English, A equals 1 and B equals 2, and then when we get further down the line, F equals 10 or whatever. And by combining these different letters, I can end up spelling a word, okay? It's called gematria. It's used, we're not talking weird Bible code stuff. We're not talking about count this and then guess the day Jesus is coming back. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a normal way that Jews would have used numbers in their writing. Letters symbolize numbers. It's called gematria. 666 spells Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero. There's two ways of spelling Caesar's name, kind of like my name is Zach, and you can spell it Z-A-C-H or you can spell it Z-A-C-K. There's two ways of spelling Nero's name. The first is Caesar Neron, which is 666. The other is Caesar Nero, and do you know what number that is? 616. If you look in your Bible by the number 666, it'll say down at the bottom that some manuscripts say 616. To me, that's a strong case when it's two of the same guy's name with the two different spellings that that's who they're thinking of as Nero. So I think the beast and the mark of the beast, 666, is a reference to Rome slash the emperor Nero. Why do I think that other than all the stuff I just gave you with numbers? Oh, by the way, gosh, there's so much fun stuff. This is so much fun. Are y'all having fun? I'm having fun. You might hate this. I'm loving this. Okay, so there's one other place in the Bible, in the New Testament actually. Uh, it might be elsewhere in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, there's one other place where the New Testament authors use these numbers and letters combined to spell somebody's name. Do you know where it is? It's in the book of Matthew, where they're giving Jesus' genealogy, and it says there's 14 generations to this, 14 generations to this, 14 generations to this, and it keeps saying 14. 14 spells David. What Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to emphasize that Jesus is this Davidic Messiah. So we see this not just in Revelation, but we see it in Matthew. 14, that spells David. He's trying to hint at David. The author of Revelation is trying to hint at Rome slash the Roman emperor. And so he's using a typical system that they would have understood as a way of saying, hey, guys, watch out for old 666, wink, wink, and they know who he's talking about. Now, let me tell you some other reasons why I believe that other than that case I just made for the numbers. Revelation 13, 1 through 3, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his heads. And the beast that I saw was like, a, uh, was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, that's the devil, gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Okay? That's, the, that's where we get this description of the beast. Let me tell you why I think that uh, 666 refers to Nero slash Rome and why the beast is Rome. A few reasons. Number one, the beast and Daniel, as I mentioned, represent oppressive political nations, okay? So we need to keep that in mind. Whatever you interpret the beast as, it has to make sense in light of Daniel. Number two, according to chapter 17 in the book of Revelation, the beast having seven heads and ten horns may be a reference to the fact that Rome was called a city on seven hills. That's what it was known as, the city on seven hills, Okay? Or it may be a reference to seven Roman emperors, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian, Titius, and Domitian, or ten rulers from Julius or Augustus Caesar around the time of John's writing of Revelation. So in chapter 17, it says, the beast has seven heads and ten horns. 
and then it says something about seven hills, and it mentions something about Roman emperors right there in the text, okay? Number three, as I mentioned, in both Greek and Hebrew, letters equal specific numbers. The word beast adds up to 666, as does the name Caesar Nero. And there's the alternate spelling, 616, which means they're still thinking of Nero. When you get the name wrong, but you still get the right guy, you spell it wrong, but you still get the right guy, they're thinking Nero. Number five, the head of the beast is said to have a fatal wound. Do you know how Nero died? He committed suicide with a sword. So there might be a reference to this beast with a wounded head being this Roman emperor who was wounded, who killed himself. He committed suicide with a sword. The beast has a false prophet that tells others to follow the beast or else people cannot be a part of the commerce and they get persecuted in Rome. Christians in the first century are being persecuted by Rome for not honoring Caesar as Lord, and they get persecuted in commerce and are sometimes killed for their faith. Okay? Be with me so far? That's a big one. That's a long one. There's a lot of information there. So just to summarize, again, big breaths. I think that we have to understand the beast slash the number 666 as a reference to Nero, to Rome, because that's what the number spells. It's known as the city on seven hills. The beast has seven heads. He committed suicide with a sword. One of the beasts has a wounded head. There are political powers in the book of Daniel. That doesn't mean that's a perfect interpretation. It just means you can't talk me out of it. I'm kidding. Uh, it just means it's really hard to come up with a better interpretation of what's going on specifically in that text. Revelation, I think 13, 18 says this, by the way. It says this. When I, it talks about his number being 666. It says this. This calls for wisdom, meaning, wink, wink, you guys know about how to add up these numbers. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. I think that's what he's saying. It is the number of a man's name. That's his whole point. So I think that's what's going on there. Okay. Who is the second beast? There's not just one beast in Revelation. He's got this weird Robin sidekick guy. All right, he's got this false prophet, is sometimes what he's called, a second beast. I think it represents those who went about spreading Roman propaganda and trying to get people to submit to Rome and worship the emperor. Let me read you what this false prophet does. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. All right, the devil appears as an angel of light. This false prophet looks like the lamb, but when he opens his mouth, he speaks like the dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs of it is allowed, I'm sorry, and by, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Okay. Who are the 144,000? This just in, by the way, our church is not Jehovah's Witness, so we hold a different view of this, all right? Who are the 144,000? They represent followers of the Davidic Messiah. They represent followers of the Davidic Messiah, okay? They are from all the 12 tribes of Israel, by the way. That's what you get with 144,000, all right? It's kind of the fullness of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah leads the pack, which is not typical. Typically, he's not the one that's mentioning kind of leading the pack, but he is in Revelation. Why? Because Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. That's why I named my son Judah. They're seen as an army, all right? They're seen as this holy, heavenly army. The fact that they are virgins does not necessarily mean literal virgins, but is probably a reference to moral purity. In Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14, one of the things that God's army has to do before they prepare for battle is they have to cleanse themselves. They couldn't have been with a woman or these kind of things during a certain amount of time because they're, they're, they're uh, doing jihad. They're involved in holy war, all right? Because in the Old Testament, God's nation and God's worship are very much linked. 
So that's what's going on in the Old Testament. So what's going on here is this 144,000 are seen as these followers, this army, if you will, of those who follow the Messiah. They're clean. They're wearing white. Uh, they're pure morally. That's the idea, right? That's the idea. Okay, not much time to do a bunch of these. I'm going to run through the rest of these, okay? The harlot. Who is the harlot mentioned in the text? By the way, uh, she's said specifically to be Babylon slash Rome, okay? She's said to be both. Rome, because they're evil, is seen as kind of a picture of Babylon because Babylon was evil and pagan, and they're the ones that enslaved uh, Judah. So I think that the harlot in Babylon stands for the decadence and wickedness of the world, especially Rome. The decadence and wickedness of the world, especially Rome. Uh, Revelation is a story of two women, okay? You have the harlot, and the harlot, she rides the beast. She's fueled by Rome, if you will. She's unclean. She promotes idolatry, idolatrous trade. She wears scarlet. She's seductive. She's got just a little bit too much lipstick on, all right? That's the harlot. She is meant to contrast with the other woman in Revelation, who is Christ's bride. Christ's bride belongs to the lamb, not the beast. She's clean. She's righteous. She wears fine linen. She's pure. She's done up like she's ready for her wedding day. Okay? Two witnesses. I think it symbolizes the church and their witness to the world. There's a reference to this passage uh, with two lampstands, by the way. There's a linking of this idea of these two witnesses to two lampstands. So I think it symbolizes the church and their witness to the world. The millennium. This could be a huge thing. We don't have time. So it's the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth when the devil is bound, which occurs right before the new heavens and new earth. I'm not going to mention my view on that today. The thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth when the devil is bound, which occurs right before the new heaven and new earth. And then lastly, and Jeff, if you want to go ahead and come up here. Lastly, what is the new Jerusalem? There's a big chunk in the book of Revelation where this big city comes down to earth, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Called the new Jerusalem. And it looks like, according to the text, a giant cube, right? It has equal dimensions of height and width and depth. It's this big-looking cube. Here's how I think we're supposed to understand that. We're not supposed to think that we're going to spend all eternity in a giant Rubik's Cube. That's not the right way to think of it. We don't live in a big Lego for all of eternity. That's not the idea. There's one other place in the Old Testament where dimensions of a perfect cube is given. Do you know what it is? What is it? It's not with heaven. That's a good guess, though. It is the Holy of Holies. The only other place where a perfect cube that I can think of is described in the Old Testament is the Holy of Holies. The temple's not this way, but the Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. I think he's trying to draw this cube imagery to say, the place in the temple where God's presence was most fully felt now is with the whole world. Notice that we don't go up to it. Again, we have a new body and a new heavens and new earth. The new Jerusalem comes down to us, and I think the idea of it being a cube is to say, you have unfiltered access to God's presence. I think that's the idea. The whole world has become God's holy of holies. There's not this hindrance. You see a lot of language with the New Jerusalem where it mentions precious stones. They're the same precious stones, by the way, mentioned in Genesis when it talks about Eden. God, through the New Jerusalem, has made the entire world Eden where he dwells with mankind. That's exciting. That's very exciting. There's no need for the sun. The Lamb's light will be that sun. The tree of uh, life is in this New Jerusalem. You have imagery that looks just like the book of Genesis. Genesis.